Join me in a word of prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated again. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Peter Schwanda, and I serve as a deacon here at CTK. And I have a problem with books. Not good books, not page turners. I have a problem with bad books that I don't like. I should be able to put them down and stop reading. And I can't. I just call them commitment reads. I still remember in high school starting The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, expose of the meatpacking district in Chicago. I'm sure that should have been very gripping for a 10th grader, but I put it down. I still intend to finish it. I think the bookmark is still there. <laughs> Another such book, which I, again, should have appreciated given its commentary on social inequalities during the French Revolution in Paris and London is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. You might recognize how it begins. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. We're still in the same sentence. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of the noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. I couldn't even attempt to do that in one breath. I'll tell you that there is one dash and 16 commas. Why my English teacher thought that we should read something which so clearly breaks the rules of grammar was beyond me. Yes, I realize it's a classic. It is quite a good book. I just had a problem with the way it was written as a teenager. I appreciated things that were more to the point. As Reverend Glade called it this week in conversation, meat and potatoes language. This is what we get in Mark. The Gospel of Mark was likely the first written, according to scholars, and one of the reasons they think this is because of its unsophisticated, very direct, almost vernacular style. If you look down at our Gospel reading for today, I think you might notice a couple of things. There's a lot of action in this busy day in the life of Jesus, almost as if time is compressed between events. And yes, this does seem to be within a 24-hour period. Just look at the action verbs. He left, they told, he came, they brought, he healed, he departed, they searched, he went. Mark uses something called the historical present in order to narrate past events with the excitement as if they're happening in real time. It's almost like a young person excited to tell you about the events of their day. And it's because Mark, very simply, is excited to tell his readers, his audience, about Jesus. He skips, if you know Mark's gospel well, he skips almost right over the birth of Jesus and jumps right into the action. He's very intentional about what he tells us about Jesus. Today we look at intentionality. Intention comes from French verb entendre, meaning to understand. It highlights that there's a connection between understanding and action. What we know and what we do. Mark is deliberate in description because Jesus 
is deliberate in action. By asking the question, what did Jesus do? We see that he shows us a few things about how intentional he is. I think that he shows us, and you will see this in your sermon notes on the back page of your leaflet, I think he shows us something about rhythms of retreat, about responsiveness to needs, and about roles of purpose. Now, if we described our day, it might sound a bit like Mark. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then. In fact, half of the verses in the book of Mark begin with the word and. You know the answer to this question. What's the most common response when you ask somebody how they are doing? Fine. I'd say that's a close second to busy. In our world, we often feel hurried, almost like our day happens to us. But Jesus is not accidentally busy here. He is purposeful. In fact, another way to consider how this is written is instead of and then, and then, and then, but then, but then. It's the same word in Greek that's translated for and or but, a conjunctive that links things together, or a disjunctive, where one thing follows after another thing, and you're left scratching your head a little bit. I think that this is a better description of what we see at the beginning of our passage. If you were to go back to verse 28, not printed in your leaflet, you'd find that Jesus had been teaching and healing at the synagogue, and the crowds had been gathering. Now, if I was Jesus, I probably would have capitalized on the momentum, gotten this religious show on the road, riled up the crowds, but not Jesus. I think a better translation of the beginning of verse 29 is, but immediately he left. We're expecting that he might capitalize on the crowds, but he deliberately retreats. First, from the midst of a public crowd to the setting of a private home of friends. And then later in our passage, if you look down at verse 33, you'll see that this happens again. The crowd gathers. It says the whole town is at the door. In fact, they go out looking for him, searching for Jesus. And you'll notice, again, Jesus retreats. This time, when the city gathers, he retreats to pray to his father. Now, I know that there's a lot of talk about self-care these days, and you may have a gut reaction about that. But given the anxieties of our time, our pandemic reality, I think we would be wise to consider what self-care means for us as Christians. Wise to consider the role of fellowship with friends. Wise to consider the gift of Sabbath and time for rest. Wise to intentionally ground ourselves in God's word, in prayer, listening for the Spirit. Now, for any American football fans, you might know what intentional grounding is. Intentional grounding is when the quarterback drops back to pass and he's faced with nothing but chaos, no good options. It's only going to end badly. And he throws the football to the ground. 
probably what I should do with a book that I don't like. The point is, he says, this outcome is not going to go well for me, and so he hits reset. I think that for us, intentionally grounding ourselves, hitting reset, and spending time with God is a good word. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, walking the neighborhood, as many of the church staff uh, are wont to do, especially when the weather is nice. You might see us roaming on a phone call or in conversation, and I ran into one of our church families who lives nearby, and they were reflecting on the effect of the pandemic on their schedules. They were telling me that, and you might be able to relate to this, it was as if the pandemic had wiped clean their calendar. And they were trying to, as they slowly built back up their schedule, to do so intentionally. They were grateful for more time together at home as a family, away from large gatherings. And I'm aware that for a lot of us, we would do anything to have a large gathering or a party right about now. But the point is this, as you are considering your schedule, which likely has a little bit more space, a little bit more margin in it these days, consider how you might block time out within your schedule that falls in line with the priorities of Jesus. How might you block out time for an important conversation with a friend that refreshes them or refreshes you? How might you block out time, perhaps early in the morning like Jesus, to pray and align yourself with God? I'm well aware that for many of us, our lives seem remarkably more complicated than Jesus. Get up in the morning, perhaps very early, before dark like Jesus, and what do you know? You gotta make the kids breakfast, you gotta get them to, well, not school, but virtual school in your living room, then you gotta get in the next room, make sure your bandwidth works, and get to work. You might even quote to me from a favorite John Lennon song, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Now, I won't remind you that Jesus sometimes felt like the needs were so pressing that he even hopped in a boat to get away, but I might say, well, Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Or Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's not just that the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. It's that God is often up to something else beyond just our plans. If we think that only we control our time, it is easy for us to miss opportunities to respond to the needs of other people. We can plan God out of it. Look back at our passage. We see that Jesus deliberately retreated, but then what happens next? He responds to the need of Simon's mother-in-law. He responds to the needs of the sick and the demon-possessed, healing them. Jesus was deliberate in his retreat, but he was also deliberately responsive to those needs. This is because it was part of 
God's purpose for him, that he would respond to the needs of others in compassion. And so for us, consider what are the needs that we see around us? And not just what are the needs, but who are the people? Remembering that needs come in all sorts of shapes, colors, and sizes, emotional, mental, spiritual, physical. Who needs a meal, a phone call, a prayer? I think if you were to survey the Gospels, you'd see that most of Jesus's ministry actually seems to be responsive. You might feel that way about your life, that most of your life, most of your actions are in response to something that happens in your day. There's a balance between planning and being responsive. And retreat and prayer and centering ourselves in God will help us in that regard. But one word of caution here is that being responsive is different from being reactionary. Consider this, many of us wake up and the first thing that we check is our phone. We wake up distractible, impressionable, we check social media, encouraged to react to posts instead of to people, we check email, and we get sucked into the trajectory of the urgent and important. Guilty as charged. That is different than responding to needs that arise where we might, with the love of God, reflect the character of Christ to others. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called Crazy Busy, and in it he reflects on today's passage saying, a bit tongue-in-cheek, if Jesus were alive today, he'd get more emails than any of us. He'd have people calling his cell all the time. He'd have a zillion requests. Jesus did not float above the fray, untouched by the pressures of normal human existence. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And that includes the temptation to be sinfully busy. Jesus knew the difference between the urgent and the important. He understood that all the good things he could do were not necessarily the things he ought to do. So how do we decide between the two? Between what we could do and what we ought to do? Look down at verse 38 and 39 with me. Jesus knew what he ought to do. Many people would call this Mark's mission statement for Jesus in his gospel. Let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came. In Mark's gospel in the first chapter, he gives a mere three sentences for baptism, two for the temptation in the wilderness, four for calling the disciples. It's almost like Mark is ticking through the roles that Jesus fills. Good Jew, check. Friend of God, check. Scripture buff, check. Rabbi, teacher, check. And then we get to verse 38, and we find his primary role, which determined his purpose. He's the Savior who offers not just a healed life now, but a healed life for eternity. And that sets his purpose towards preaching. Preaching so that people would know that truth and respond. But what's our purpose? 
And I, I don't mean to just have you rephrase, I don't, I don't mean to just rephrase the question to you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Though for some, that's a good thing to think about. I think when we hear a question like that, what's your purpose, we fall into one of two modes. Really spiritual, we think about God's calling and his will, and maybe if we're even more reformed than I am, we quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism that, that you know, the, the purpose of man is to, to do what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we, we trend to the very spiritual or we trend to the very practical. What's my purpose? Let me get out my phone, check my planner. What's my job today to do right now? Somewhere in between, we find the vision that scripture actually gives for our calling and our vocation. It is both spiritual and practical. It gives us direction both generally as Christians, as God's children, as those who are recreated in Christ, as those who are compelled by Christ's love to share his love with others. But it also gives us wisdom specifically as individuals because we're individuals who have been given different gifts, different and diverse functions to play in God's world. So whether you think about it very spiritually or very practically, I think a helpful way to think about it is in terms of your roles and the purposes of those roles. There's an illustration that Scottish philosopher Alistair McIntyre uses, using a simple wristwatch. So I'll ask you, is this a good or a bad watch? It's a Timex, a bit clunky. My grandparents gave it to me about 30 years ago. Not particularly valuable. None of those help determine whether it's a good watch or a bad watch. McIntyre writes, to call a watch good is to say that it's the kind of watch which someone would choose if they wanted to watch or keep the time accurately. And then he says, tongue in cheek, rather than say, to throw at the cat. So while this heavy clunker of a Timex has, yes, taken a licking and kept on ticking and would make a good thing to throw at a cat, more importantly, it's a good watch because it fulfills the basic purpose for which it was created. Unless you know the purpose of something, you don't know whether it's good. You don't know what it's for. And for the classical tradition, in the words of McIntyre, this means that to fill a set of roles, each of which has its own point and purpose, is our purpose. Whether a member of a family, a citizen, a soldier, a philosopher, a servant of God, I'd add a parent, an employee, an employer, a child. Consider making a list of your roles. Not right now because I'm going to keep moving, but do it this week. Jot down a list of three, four, five roles. And then take a minute, write down a sentence or a few phrases about what you think God's purpose is for you in those roles. I think it's a worthwhile endeavor. I think if you put it somewhere where you see it, much like a company might do with their mission statement, it might actually begin to be reflected in your intentions as you go about your day. I referenced the book Crazy Busy earlier, and the author, no surprise, spends most of the book telling us why we're too crazy busy. Worrying about the kids, trying to do too much, of course, too much screen time, 
Those things, yes, we're probably guilty of those. But he concludes by saying something which surprised me. He says, the, busy need, the busyness that's bad is not the busyness of work, but the busyness that works hard at the wrong things. Busy trying to do things that we haven't been called to do. Jesus had a busy day. Jesus was also God. You have busy days. You are not. We have different roles, and that should be freeing for us. Now, most sermons that you hear preached, at least at this church, are not what would Jesus do sermons. The reason is because Jesus is not just an example for us, because he has a different role, and because he is our Savior. We're accepted because he fulfilled his purpose on the cross. We're not accepted based on our ability to fulfill our purpose. The patterns that we see in Scripture, the patterns we see in Jesus' life, are meant for our good, for our flourishing, and for that of others. So when we, when we think about this passage, let's pray that God would give us the courage to retreat, to embrace our God-given roles, and not the things that we feel like we could do. This will free us from that wrong kind of busyness so that we can retreat and be with those that we love, so that we can retreat and be with the God who loves us, and so that we can respond to others around us with God's love. Amen.